0: well hello everyone my name is jb with nbw ministries proclaiming the clear accurate and urgent gospel message today is thursday december the 28th uh, 2023 we are winding down the year but what a year it has been uh, so many things happening in the world, across the country, and so thankful for your partnership in this ministry, and the Lord has allowed us at NBW Ministries to uh, to advance the grace message and the powerful gospel message all across the land, all across the world, really with our podcast ministry and video ministry and uh, books and Uh, digital books and all of those types of things. So praise God for that. We really appreciate all of your help in that regard. If you've been listening to the podcast this week, you know that uh, I'm out of pocket with my family, enjoying uh, some much-needed rest and relaxation. We tend to take the last couple of weeks each year as a family and enjoy some vacation time Uh, so we decided uh, since we aren't doing our regular daily podcast where i interview guests and we have special guests on and talk about current events and and topical matters uh, that we would post some uh, videos or excuse me some audio files of my teaching down at a bible college in Texas. You know, last month I had the opportunity to be a guest lecturer down there at a Bible college. I taught Monday through Friday, an intensive modular uh, approach, uh, teaching about eight hours a day on the doctrine of salvation. And uh, our premier members, those of you that are uh, subscribers, uh, you've gotten access to all of those videos, uh, some 25 hours or so of video messages. Uh, But we've selected five five of those messages uh, to post this week and we're focusing on tough texts you know passages of scripture that uh, relate to the doctrine of salvation and are often misunderstood and so each day this week i've shared a message with you from that teaching time on a different passage of scripture we kicked off the week on christmas day by looking at john 15 and what it means to abide in christ the last couple of days we've done a two-part uh, study on James chapter 2 verses 14 to 26 and what is dead faith. And uh, and then today we're going to go to Romans chapter 10. And this whole idea of confess or believe, what does it mean? And what is really going on in that passage of scripture there in uh, Romans 10? I, I taught uh, last month at Plum Creek Chapel on Romans 9 through 11. If you watched that video or listened to that podcast, then you already kind of know a little bit about what i'm going to say here in romans 10 Uh, but again i hope you enjoy this uh, study and our discussion today on uh, confess or believe from romans 10 Uh, and before we get to that podcast just a couple of reminders Uh, we are looking forward to a great year next year we'll kick off next week uh, with uh, some great guests and great podcasts lined up already for the first couple of weeks in 2024 and you know it's going to be a it's going to be an important year you know a lot is going on a lot of things are lining up we've got an election we've got the trump trials we've got uh, just all kinds of geopolitical events the wars and so i think it's gonna be more important than ever that we try to look at everything through the lens of scripture so i hope you'll make a point to stay in touch with us throughout uh, the year you can sign up for our newsletter at NotByWorks.org at the bottom of the homepage, Just enter your email address in the box there. We send out a newsletter generally on Tuesday and Saturday. Occasionally we'll send out uh, an additional newsletter, but always on Tuesday and Saturday. And while you're on the website, you can check out our video page with all of our free videos, our podcast page. You know, our podcasts are available on every podcast channel, uh, or podcast provider, I should say. Just search for the Not by Works Ministries channel and subscribe. Um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, uh, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're on all of them. And, uh, but you can also get to them from our website. And while you're on the website, check out our online store. Uh, We've got a whole free resources section that you can uh, uh, Download uh, all kinds of PDF resources of articles. I've written charts uh, Diagrams, uh, you know topical papers addressing certain issues no credit card needed Just uh, put them in your card and check out and it'll email it to you automatically of course. We have other resources there books streaming video uh, other uh, gospel uh, tracts and, and gospel evangelistic resources. Uh, so just uh, check out the store there as you're um, uh, poking around on the website uh, this week. But I hope everybody uh, finishes strong this year. We, again, are so thankful for your prayers and support and uh, looking forward to getting back in the office uh, next week. So today we're looking at Romans 10. One more to go tomorrow on this sort of mini-series on tough texts. And tomorrow I'll be addressing 1 John chapter 3. God bless you, everyone, and thanks for listening. I want to look at Romans chapter 10. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Roman roadmap for salvation? Anybody heard of that phrase? So, so let me tell you my history with that. I, I, of course, I mentioned I grew up in a Christian family and went to Christian camps. And I remember being in junior high school and attending Word of Life Bible Camp in Scroon Lake, New York. And uh, at that camp, they were teaching us how to have a quiet time, how to have a devotion, uh, learning some good, good habits, um, that some of which stick with me to this day. And, uh, but one of the things that I remember they did was they talked about how to share uh, the gospel with others using the Roman Roadmap. And it's called the Roman Roadmap because it's verses mostly from the book of Romans. And I still have the Bible that I had at that time where you, you, know, you have to just remember the first verse, Romans 3.23, but then you write out beside that what verse you go to next. And then and so you start by sharing the gospel with someone, by reminding them they're a sinner, and then you go to Romans 3.10, then Romans 6.23, then Romans 5.8, and you just work your way through Romans explaining the gospel. Well, one of those verses that is very common is Romans 10, 9 and 10. Uh, and so let me put that on the screen here. It's in, uh, it's in green here. We'll, actually, we'll make it a separate color from the others so that you can notice it. But this is often included as part of the Roman road, where Paul says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation and most people are content just to say yes this is talking about eternal salvation and yes it's the means of returning uh, of, of of experiencing eternal salvation but obviously at face value there's some issues with that because you've got multiple conditions here you've got confession and if you remember our discussion from earlier in the week confession is homo legeo, uh to say the same thing as, you know, to agree with God about is the idea. You've got believe, that's a verb, right? And then you've got references to righteousness, dikayasune. Then you've got, you've got salvation. Well, we've already talked about that. So tiriak, does that mean physical salvation? Uh, eternal salvation. What deliverance from what? If we look up the noun, we looked at the verb in our study of James before lunch. But if we look up the uh, the verb, I mean the noun, uh, deliverance, preservation, salvation. So as we said, when you see the verb "saved," you need to say "saved from what." Same thing with the noun. When it talks about salvation, deliverance from what? I notice it can mean safety. Uh, safekeeping, security, preservation, and of course we know in some context it means uh, salvation from hell. So you got some issues here with Romans 10, 9, and 10, and the way most grace guys, and by that I mean those who believe that salvation is freely by God's grace, not Calvinists, uh, they handle this in various ways. Most often what you'll hear is that confession is a synonym for believe, right? And they say that because we we ought to know, based on the clear teaching of Scripture, that there are not two conditions for having eternal life, confess and believe. Uh, You know, you, you, you don't have to publicly confess. Now, you'll hear that, people say that. You'll hear people talk about, well, if you know, if you're not willing to publicly walk this aisle for Jesus, then he's not going to give you eternal life, you know. He went to the cross for you, you ought to come down to the altar for him. You've got to do public confession to be saved. You'll hear that, but at least in the grace camp, we, we certainly know that that's not biblical. Um, so usually they'll just say confession and believe are uh, two sides of the same coin, they, they're synonyms, so to speak. Um But you've still got to deal with the idea of righteousness versus salvation. Why is Paul being so redundant? For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And it would be really strange indeed for uh, by this point in the book of Romans, 10 chapters in, for the reader not to have understood that Paul's term for being made right with God you know, his term for eternal salvation, if you will, throughout Romans is righteousness, positional righteousness, you know. For example, you could go to uh, Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith. De- justified means declared righteous, similar word form as dikaiosune that we just looked at in Romans 10. It's it's dikaiao, the verb, to be declared righteous. Um, we could go to Romans 3.10, another one of those passages in the Roman road. There is none righteous, no, not want. See, that's the problem with mankind. We're not righteous enough to get into heaven, and the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. Going back to Matthew five uh, forty eight. He says therefore you shall be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard, that's the goal. So Romans 10:9 and 10, though it's often just summarily, you know, mentioned and thrown around out there like everybody knows what it means, it's it's actually there are some problems in terms of do we really understand what it's saying? And so what I want us to do is to walk through the context of Romans uh, 10 We'll start at the end of uh, chapter 9. And I want to suggest that the way this is traditionally handled by most uh, people is not the correct interpretation. Now, this passage is not as uh, commonly misunderstood as James 2, 14 to 26, like we talked about before lunch. There are quite a few commentators out there that will handle this correctly. But still, I think they're in the minority. Most people really don't understand what Paul is saying here. And it all goes down to... Uh, the context. So I've given you notes on this, but again, we're going to just camp out with the Bible on the screen and just kind of walk our way uh, through it. So let's, uh, let's look at the, the context, uh, the broader context of where we're at in Romans. This, of course, falls smack dab in the middle of Romans 9 through 11. Those three chapters are all about Israel and God's plan for future Israel. And how does the present church age and the present Jew and Gentile in one body both having access to the Lord the, the you know the unmitigated access through the new and living way that was opened up for us by our Savior What impact does that have on Israel Does that mean that Israel has replaced has been replaced does, does God no longer have a future for Israel has God forsaken his promises to them And even though he's writing to a Roman audience he's he's sort of anticipating he'd never been to Rome yet Paul had not but he's anticipating the questions that might arise in the mind of the early church about Israel. Because for, you know, since God called Abraham in 2091 B.C., God's focus had been on Israel. Now all of a sudden there's a shift, this mystery, this new teaching that Paul would later delineate in his prison epistle, Ephesians. Uh, People might wonder, what in the world is going on with Israel? So chapters 9 through 11 answer the question, what about Israel? And so we're going to pick it up in, at the end of chapter 9, keeping in mind that there were no chapter divisions in the early in the original text. So it's all one flow of thought. And notice what he says. What shall we say then? And another way to paraphrase that in our modern parlance would be Are you telling me? Are you telling me this? Are, are you telling me that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But on the other hand, Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, and in chapter 10 we're going to see he says zealously. I mean, they were passionate about the righteousness of God, the law. You're telling me that Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Is that what you're telling me? These dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles get to be declared righteous, the righteousness of faith. But meanwhile, these morally upstanding Jews who dotted their I's and crossed their T's aren't righteous? And and the implied answer is yes. And Paul says, why? Well, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. See, Israel sought to be righteous by keeping the law, and by the works of the law, as he said earlier in Romans, no one, no flesh can be made righteous. See, they stumbled at the stumbling stone, and then he quotes here uh, Isaiah uh, 8 and 28, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So that's the crux of the matter, is that Israel as a nation... Is you know they they're not going to get into their kingdom because they have not pursued the right pathway to righteousness. They were trying to keep the law, and and Jesus you know his whole ministry really was this uh, corrective against the first century perception by the Jews of how you get to be righteous enough to get into the kingdom versus the, the broader appeal of the kingdom which is hey come one come all anyone will come and you remember Jesus first major sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 it's also in the other gospels but Matthew's account was called the Sermon on the Mount in which he makes that point repeatedly he he talks about how the righteous behavior of the, of the Jewish people was, had really missed the mark they might you know claim that they haven't committed murder but if you've you know, hated, you're, you're guilty. You might have thought you didn't commit adultery, but if you've lusted, you're guilty. And he goes on to say in Matthew 5, uh, 17, or 20, I think it is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. So he's kind of creating a standard. So you've got to understand in the first century, the common Jews looked at the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law as the ones who had it all together. They might not have liked them on a personal level because they lorded it over them and so forth. But in their understanding of Judaism, these guys were the top tier. I mean, they were the ones that were way ahead of the line to get into the kingdom. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, man, you can almost hear the gasps in the crowd. For one thing, They weren't used to anybody criticizing the Pharisees and scribes publicly. But secondly, they probably wondered at that moment, well, if that's the standard, how in the world am I going to do better than that? How am I going to be able to do better than these scribes and Pharisees? Uh, And in fact, uh, Jesus goes on to explain, it's not even that you have to be better than them, but later on in that same chapter, Matthew 5, He says you've got to be perfect, as we just looked at. So lest he, lest anybody listening to him that day on the mountainside be confused and think that Jesus was just setting a little bit higher standard, and, and they think, well, okay, it's going to be tough, but if that's what it takes, I'll just try harder, I'll work harder, I'll do better, I'll try to be better than these Pharisees. Jesus removes all doubt about his real point by saying, look, the fact is you've got to be perfect. No room for error. You have to be 100% perfect if you want to get into the kingdom. And then he goes on to explain in chapter 6 and 7 more details about all of that. So Paul, here, some years after Jesus gave that sermon, is under the inspiration of the Spirit, explaining it more from a doctrinal perspective. And he, he says righteousness again and again and again. You know, the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but they attained righteousness, the righteousness of faith. Meanwhile, Israel pursued the righteousness of the law but they did not attain the righteousness of the law, and so forth and so on. It's all about righteousness, and Jesus is saying the Jews missed it because they had fake righteousness or self-righteousness rather than faith righteousness. So chapter 10, the New King James heading here is actually pretty instructive. Israel needs the gospel. What he's going to go on to explain is that before the nation of Israel can receive the long-awaited kingdom nationally, they must individually believe the gospel. Individual justification comes before national deliverance. So keeping in mind that for ten chapters or nine chapters up to this point, Paul has made a repeated emphasis of righteousness and the righteousness of God and being declared righteous, being justified by faith, he now brings up, and this isn't the first time he's used the word, but context determines meaning. And he says in chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the nation, not for Jews, not for my kindred folk, not for my fellow man, but for the nation, is that they may be uh, delivered. So, The word saved there, again, sozo, just means delivered. And we might read that, and we might think he's talking about individual salvation, but I I think we'd be wrong. I think in the context, he's talking about national deliverance. And let me make my case just with some bullet points here, and then we're going to see that as we walk through it. But first of all, he quotes Joel 2, uh, as a, which is a second coming passage, if you read, go back to Joel 2, it's talking about at the time when Christ comes back to inaugurate the kingdom, when he says, "All who call on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Going on into chapter 11, he talks about how the deliverer will come out of Zion, so we will see Israel get their kingdom when the deliverer comes out of Zion someday. There's just a lot of things happening in this passage that speak of national deliverance. So verse 1, I believe, contextually and grammatically with the, 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 the plural, uh, there's a textual variant here. It's either Israel or them. Either way, you're dealing with multiple people. And people don't get eternally saved as a group. They get eternally saved as individuals by personal faith alone in Christ alone. And here he's talking about plural. They may be saved, the nation of Israel. And so then he just continues talking about what he talked about in the preceding sentence, which is in our chapter 9, but again, there were no chapter divisions. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge, true knowledge, biblical knowledge. Notice, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, they didn't pursue it the right way, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So now he's talking about individuals, every person who believes. So when you believe the gospel, you are declared righteous. And since Israel had not done that, you know, the national leaders, they were not delivered into the kingdom. So what I'm hoping to demonstrate, just to kind of tell you what I'm going to tell you, is there is a difference throughout this passage between individual faith that leads to righteousness and corporate confession that leads to deliverance. Now go back and look at, uh, let's see here, let's go to uh, Matthew 23. Can you say that again that last sentence? Yeah. yeah. There's a contrast in this passage between individual uh, righteousness individual faith that leads to righteousness individual faith that leads to righteousness versus corporate confession that leads to deliverance so let's go look at some background passages here that kind of make this case we could actually go to um, earlier here let me see if I can find this real quick um, Let's see. Let's Hmm. I'm trying to remember the passage, it's in either Matthew twenty two or twenty one. Um No, that's 23, but this is where he says, I'm going to take the, the kingdom from you and give it to... Let's just look up kingdom. In Matthew. You're searching through all Bibles. Yeah, there it is. So, uh, Matthew twenty-one forty-three. This is the last week of Christ's life. He's, he's ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in uh you know matthew 21 and so he's in jerusalem now it's final passion week he's overturning the tables of the money changers and that kind of thing and you get down to verse 43 and he says therefore i say to you the kingdom of god will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it he's speaking to those first century jewish leaders and in the context he's Quoting the same thing that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10, or at the end of chapter 9, from Isaiah, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Um, In other words, you guys missed it. You leaders missed it. And therefore, you're not going to get to see the kingdom. A future nation, not the Gentiles, but a future nation of Jews, the ones that rightly receive it, will get to experience the blessings of the kingdom. Then he tells the parable of the marriage feast. The one guy comes in without the right wedding garment. He didn't have faith, is the idea. You gotta have individual faith to be part of the kingdom. Uh, then you get down here to Matthew 23, and Jesus has all these wonderful loving things to say to the Jewish leaders, like hypocrites and you know, snakes and vipers, and you know, all of those kinds of things. And then notice he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, desolate. Now here's the key. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, this is the nation crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic prophecy from Psalm 118. As you know, just a couple of days before Jesus makes this statement, there was a splattering of Jews who did, in fact, cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, at the triumphal entry. That was a remnant. But within a few days, the cries would change to crucify him, crucify him, as the leaders, Uh, led a mob reaction and the people themselves also joined in and said crucify him, crucify him. So what Jesus is saying is you national leaders in Israel as a nation you won't see me again. You forfeited the chance to get your kingdom in this generation. You won't see me again until as a nation you cry out blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Alright so now let's go back to Romans. Paul is uh, going to quote Joel 2. Well, let's just walk our way through it. So he talks about in chapter 10, verse 5, that Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. He's just making the case that faith righteousness is what it takes to be declared right with God. Uh, And then he quotes another passage here in Deuteronomy, do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will ascend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Because the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, Paul is trying to explain here by quoting the Old Testament law that you should have known this all along. The fact that it takes faith to be declared righteous is not new information. Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis 15, declared was declared righteous, was made righteous by his faith. So Paul's just sprinkling in some Old Testament passages to explain to his audience that indeed Israel should have known better, they should have uh, believed. And then here's what he says, what essentially what the Old Testament prophets declared was that if you, and again this is uh, talking to the individual Jews in the context here. Remember he starts out, I want all of Israel to be delivered. Remember, saved just means delivered, Romans 10.1. But they have not individually believed. Christ is the end of the law for every individual person who believes. So he's now speaking to the Jewish people, and he's saying, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For Israel's national deliverance, two things have to precede it individual faith unto righteousness, and national confession unto deliverance into the kingdom. Remember what Jesus said, you're not going to see me until you cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you who comes in the name of the Lord. And just follow Paul's argument, verse 10. For it is with the heart that one believes unto righteousness. That's pretty clear throughout Scripture. Faith, and justification by faith. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Paul's not being repetitious here. He's not just being flowery and saying the same thing twice, just using different words. He's talking about two different things. In the context, there's a difference between individual righteousness and confession that leads to deliverance. Um, And then he, he proves this point by citing two Old Testament passages. On the one hand, whoever believes on him is not put to shame. It's always been by faith. Isaiah 28.16, which he's quoted a couple times already. And then uh, he says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Let's go back and look at Joel 2, which is where this is a passage from, Joel 2.32. Anytime you see the New Testament mentioned in the Old Testament, you should go back and look it up. I mean, the Old Testament mentioned in the New Testament. So what do we see happening here? Uh, This is after the tribulation of those days, the context is the great day of the Lord's wrath in the first part of chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, and also my manservant and maidservant. So I will pour out my spirit on those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon will be turned into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That day of the Lord at this point is the moment when he comes back at the battle of Armageddon to usher in the kingdom. And when he does, guess what? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. If you have a good English Bible, it even puts a note in there that in the Hebrew, that word saved means delivered. Israel has been waiting to be delivered into their kingdom since they got out of Egypt. God promised them a kingdom, but through uh, disobedience and lack of faith again and again, they kept getting disciplined by God through prophets, through priests, through kings, through exiles. Finally, when the king of kings and lord of lords comes back, uh, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So the unmistakable context of Joel 2.32 is the second coming and the kingdom. So we, we, if we kind of look at chapter 10, verses 1 all the way to 13, as this inclusio, he starts out by saying, I want all this to be delivered. And then he say, he quotes Joel and says, when they call on the name of the Lord, they will be delivered. So I realize that we have the same problem here that we had with James 2, and that is we're so conditioned to think saved means individually unto eternal life that we see saved, and we just immediately, our mind goes to eternal salvation. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, and it's clear enough from the context because, as he says in chapter 11, it's when the Deliverer comes to Zion that they will be delivered, into their long-awaited kingdom. God has not forsaken Israel forever. So he, he's kind of quoting several Old Testament passages. It's clear from the context that he seems to be differentiating between individual faith unto righteousness and national confession unto a deliverance into the kingdom. But he really spells it out beginning in verse 14. He asks the, the obvious question, How can they, Israel, call on him in whom they have not first believed? When you're unbelievers, you cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But when you've come to faith in Christ and been declared righteous before a holy God, the next time around, guess what? You're going to cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Paul makes this logical argument How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, Isaiah 61, I think it is, or I'm sorry, 52, who bring good tidings. But then he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's just the problem. This is why Israel doesn't get the kingdom. Remember, his opening statement in this chapter was, my my heart's desire for Israel is that they be delivered into the kingdom. In other words, nobody wants Israel to get her kingdom better than me. What question is he answering in chapters 9, 10, and 11? What about Israel? Has God forsaken them? Has he cast them off forever? Can they just forget about this kingdom? Stop obsessing about it? It ain't going to happen. Just give it up? No, no, not at all. Nobody wants Israel to have their kingdom more than me. My heart's desire and prayer to God before Israel is that they be delivered into the kingdom. But for that to happen, they must first individually believe the gospel. And they have not done that. And then he, he says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So skip ahead to chapter 11. I say that, yeah. I oh, was just raising my hand for Zephyr. Oh. Zephyr, over here. Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah, and I find it funny, in the, the Joel 2.32 passage, the ESV has more has another doctrinal bias there. Um, and it says, uh, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Oh, yeah, through whom the Lord called. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, ESV, the elect standard version. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so here Paul is going to make his closing argument. Remember, doctrinal epistles are doctrinal treatises, right? So he's, this is a logical argument uh, about doctrinal matters. And so the whole point of chapters 9 through 11 is, is to God done with Israel. I'm going to be preaching on chapter 11 Sunday at Plum Creek Chapel about the olive tree. But Paul says, I say then, in light of these arguments that I've just made, that, before, that that Israel was rejected because they didn't seek the righteousness of God that comes by faith. They sought it by the law. I'd love to see Israel get their kingdom. But before they can do that, they've got to first individually believe the gospel. They've got to be declared righteous by faith individually before the nation can stand up and cry, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Individual faith unto righteousness must come before national confession unto deliverance. So he's wrapping it up now in chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. No way. First of all, there's a remnant right now. He says, I am an Israelite. I'm the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. There's always a remnant, in other words. Um, the Lord said to Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, this is the passage we've looked at several times already, if by grace it's no longer works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. If it's of works, it's no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. So there is a remnant in the present day. And then he says, well, then they stumbled. Does that mean they have utterly fallen? Absolutely not. God's working out His plan through their fall, Romans eleven eleven to provoke Israel to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles, right? I think in this context, it's clear since he's speaking universally uh, that salvation is from the penalty of sin. He's not talking about the kingdom. He just uses the same word deliverance because he's been talking about Israel's national deliverance. And so he's going to say, well, you know, during this time when they've fallen, later he's going to call it a time of blindness, uh, that a different kind of salvation has come to the Gentiles, the kind that comes by grace through faith. And, and in, in Paul almost gets excited here. He says, now if there Israel's fall results in riches for the whole world, for God's love, the whole world that he gave his son, then their, and, and their failure is riches to the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? you think it's amazing now what the Spirit of God is doing by God's grace throughout the world? Just imagine when Israel receives the kingdom and the king takes the throne and the whole world is under a global kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. That's just going to be amazing. Jeremiah describes that as a time when everyone will know of him from the least to the greatest. You won't have to do any teaching at that time. Everybody will know Jesus. And so he says... If their being cast away leads to the reconciling of the world, and what he's saying here is that you know God is God of course, as we've said, is outside of time, space, and matter, he's doing a, a lot of things, you know, overlapping in our day, and one of which is the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah nationally by crucifying him and placing a crown of thorns on his head instead of a king's crown. But of course. Calvary was about much more than that, obviously. It was about redeeming mankind from the penalty of sin and saving the world. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. Yes, Israel rejected the Messiah and crucified Him, but that's what was necessary for the reconciling of the whole world. And that being the case, just imagine the impact on the whole world when they accept Christ and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you who comes in the name of the Lord. So then you skip down, we'll skip over the olive tree, but you skip down to 25 and 26, and he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then, the word so there means then, uh, then all Israel will be delivered. And again, you've got a nice little a textual marker here in the New King James reminding us that it doesn't mean saved eternally but delivered into the kingdom. When will this happen? We see another second coming passage when the deliverer comes out of Zion and, and the final covenant, fulfillment of the covenant takes place. The ultimate goal of God's plan of the ages is to bring Israel into the kingdom and through Israel have a global kingdom. That's what the children of Israel were supposed to do when they crossed the Jordan. God wanted them to set up camp, be a light to the pagan nations around them, and draw people to Yahweh. They they were supposed to be, the same way uh, the the church is today, witnesses to the nations. But, of course, they failed. They didn't ultimately bring the other nations to Yahweh. They, in fact, capitulated to the other nations, intermarried, and adopted their pagan rituals. Same things happening in the church today. We're, We're called to evangelize the world, to make a difference in this world, the Great Commission. But as the Bible says, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more we will see a great end times apostasy. The church is failing. Um, doesn't mean God's not at work. Doesn't mean there's not great revival. It does not mean that, that, that we've not, not had some successes. But we're not gonna see worldwide, global, 100% evangelization until the King of Kings comes back and sits on the throne. And so Paul says we're in a period right now where Israel has been set aside, God's bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles, but there's a time coming when all Israel, not just the, the remnant, remember he says blindness in part, there are Jews today that get saved, right? And not every Jew rejects the gospel. Paul gives himself as an example, but over 2,000 years of church history, we've had a number of Jews that have gotten saved. Even today in the secular state of Israel, there are Messianic Jews. So there is a there are remnant, but the, there is blindness in Israel. And someday that blindness will be lifted in all Israel, not just the remnant, but all Israel. It doesn't mean every Jew, it just means the whole nation. So there's this contrast between a remnant of individuals at the first advent who received Christ when the nation as a whole rejected Him, And then the next time around, you're going to see the nation as a whole reject, I mean, accept him, even though there will still be many Jews who take the mark of the beast and reject Christ and and fall prey to the lie of the Antichrist. So it's kind of a reversal. But all I'm wanting you to see here is that the whole point of this section is for Paul to prove that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Those unconditional promises that he made to Israel, he hasn't abrogated them, he hasn't given them up. He hasn't changed his mind. He meant business when he said, you're going to get a kingdom and it'll be a global kingdom. And, uh, and so yes, there's a future for Israel. But the problem is, before Israel can call on the name of the Lord, going back here to Romans 10:13, to be saved, to be delivered, they must individually believe the gospel. And so I see Romans 10, 10 9, and 10, is kind of tucked right in the middle of this juxtaposition between individual faith righteousness and national uh, corporate confession that leads to deliverance. Confess, I would see here, is not a synonym for believe, but as a synonym for call. Whoever calls or confesses the name of the Lord will be delivered in the kingdom, but before that can happen, they've got to individually believe uh, believe the gospel. I mean after all, even though we see Romans 10:13 all the time in an evangelistic context, does anybody get saved by calling on the name of the Lord? I mean when you think about it, how many unbelievers in a moment of death they're about to crash over a hill or they're you know some tragedy's happening and they, they cry out, "Oh my God! I mean they've called on the name of the Lord Does that mean they're in heaven? Nobody gets to heaven by calling on the name of the Lord they get to heaven. Uh, because they believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. But what is the result of calling on the name of the Lord? Well, according to Jesus, according to the Old Testament prophets, and according to Paul here, when the nation of Israel first believes the gospel and then cries out to God, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, guess what? They will experience national deliverance into the kingdom. Does that make sense? So I just want you to think through this passage uh, with an uh, an Israelite flavor. You know, this isn't all about individual salvation. The covenant theologians like to ignore the national promises to Israel and make it all about individual salvation. So they muddy it all together in this section, which is all about Israel from chapter 9 to chapter 11, and they make it all about individual uh, salvation, and so you know, oh, you got to confess, you know, you got to walk an aisle, or you got to, well, it just means believe. It's the same thing as believe, but it's all about you can be saved. And if you just call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. I think that's overly simplistic and, you know, really runs in the face of the, the pretty clear context when you, when you think through it. So any questions about Romans 10, 9 and 10 at this point? Anybody uh, heard that view before? Yeah, good i have a question sure um i'm all with the israel context 9 10 11 um and even the calling like the nation as the whole calling on christ or confessing him and bless he who comes in the name of the lord just always been confused by verse 11 or 12 where it says there is no distinction between jew and greek for the same lord overall is rich to all who call on him so it's an israel context but and it mentions the Greeks there. So how would you kind of understand what he's saying with that reference between you and Greece? Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, when you meet the criteria and you call on the Lord, certain things happen, right? And so uh, he's just saying that God is faithful. All, you know, Jews and Greeks and everyone, the kingdom is, after all, even though it's Israel's kingdom, it is a global kingdom. Uh, and the Lord's going to keep his promise. So I don't think you can take verse 12 out in isolation and just sort of make it a generic theological statement that anyone who calls the name of the Lord is gonna be blessed. In the context here, he's talking about calling on the name of the Lord at the second coming as verse 13 makes clear by quoting Joel 2.32. So I think it's just a general statement that God's gonna keep His word. Uh, if you meet the criteria, you'll you'll be there. Many people, and we have biblical examples of this too, have called on the name of the Lord. and you know they didn't meet the criteria does that help no it does yeah so you would see it as during the tribulation not just Israel obviously calling out for Christ to return and deliver them but also just anybody outside the Jewish nation calling on God because they believe in him to rescue yeah I don't know if that in the tribulation I'd have to think more clearly about some of the specific passages in Revelation do we have Non-Jewish people. I mean, in, in the context, it's the great end times regathering. It's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 and Isaiah 27 13 and other. All, all the prophets actually talk about this great end times regathering into the land. That's the calling. That's when you know go go to Matthew uh, 24 verse uh, 30 or so, 31 at Christ's second coming he says he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect that's Israel from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other now we know that happens at the second coming it's a supernatural regathering we've already begun to see a physical natural regathering in 1948 but it's in unbelief this will be at that this will be that moment when those who have believed the gospel and rejected the Antichrist's lies in Israel will cry out, blessed is he who comes the name of the Lord, and then they will be supernaturally deposited, you know, physically into the land. Um, so I just, I think in the Romans passage, he's sort of saying, I don't think this should be taken as a technical term to encompass anybody who calls the name of the Lord is gonna be saved eternally even though we know there will be people in the tribulation period, Jew, Gentile, every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, who are eternally saved by faith. I think he's just, you know, kind of summarizing, uh, you know, because he says there in Isaiah 28, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the key. Whoever, Any, anybody that believes in him is going to be declared righteous. He's reiterating the fact that this is universally true. Jew and Gentile alike, there's, no, there's nobody else. You're either one or the other. Um, And he says, the same Lord is rich over all who call upon him. I mean, could call upon him in that particular place be a general statement for anybody who gets saved? Possibly, but I think the bigger point that he's making is that both Jews and Gentiles alike have the same option. And Israel stumbled at it. They missed the point. They should have known, as he quotes earlier, that it was right there in their midst, right near to them. (laughs) This is not new information. They should have known that it was by faith. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way from Deuteronomy there. And uh, and Jew gentile like anybody can be saved. I think that's the bigger picture. Yeah? Yeah, would you kind of see that? How, how would that relate to verses 14 through 17 where it kind of goes on to talk about... I gotta, oh, sorry. No, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's... 14 and following is where he really drives home the point. They cannot call on the name of the Lord to be delivered into the kingdom until they first believed the gospel. See? Watch the progression of thought. How can they call on Him in whom they have not believed? We saw how that worked the first time. Having not believed in Him, they cried, crucify Him, crucify Him. So they got to believe in Him first. How can they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? So I think there's certainly a universal aspect to the the future kingdom that Paul envisions here, he certainly throughout the whole book of Romans, he starts in chapters one through three talking about the universal nature nature of depravity and sin, and the universal nature of the fact that, you know, God loved the whole world that He sent His Son, uh, you know, Romans five eight and, and other places. So, I think you know certainly there's a lot going on in this passage, but all I'm trying to say is that. We don't want to lead people to believe that in order for them to get into heaven, they've got to confess with their mouth. Because that begs a lot of questions. Can mute people get to heaven? <laughs> you know, for one thing. So, and it, it just, it's not what Paul is saying there. Confession is never uh, delineated as a requirement for getting into heaven. Now, theologically, we could say. Well, you have to agree with God that you're a sinner before you can be saved. Yeah, I totally get that. So, uh, But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about actually professing something verbally, out loud. Um, we, we see other passages that I think are also misunderstood about confession, like Matthew 10. Um, Thirty-two. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So does that mean that you've got to publicly confess the Lord before other people if you're going to get to heaven? What's going on with this passage? Anybody know? Yeah. hmm I think it, it absolutely has to do with rewards one of which is positions of authority and service and reign in the kingdom Jesus is talking to the disciples you know and and he's just reminding them that look you're gonna have an opportunity here at great personal cost to stand up boldly for me and a lot of people don't like me <laughs> me being Jesus People like me. People like you and don't like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. No, they don't like me too sometimes. Um, So what he's saying is that if you confess me, I'm going to confess you before my Father in heaven. It doesn't mean you're going to not get into heaven if you don't. There's a special commendation that awaits those who boldly, unashamedly pay the ultimate price. Here on earth. Again, we read into this stuff. You know, I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this passage preached that way. You know, Jesus was bold enough to go to the cross for you. You got to stand for him. If you won't stand for him, you're not going to heaven, right? Um, look at Revelation chapter uh, 3, verse. We find it here. Hmm. 5. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, again, when you have a works-based, performance-based understanding of eternal salvation then it's pretty easy to fall into the trap here of saying if you don't overcome you're going to hell you know but first of all John the same author of Revelation makes it clear in in his first epistle that our faith is what makes us overcomers we are all overcomers because of our faith so there's a category of overcomers that is believers so um, that's number one. So this is not a contingency statement. But he seems to be saying more than that here, that there's something special that awaits certain of those overcomers. He doesn't say, you know, all overcomers. It's just saying among the overcomers, there's something special uh, for certain people. And what is it? Three things that he describes here, special clothing that will cause you to stand out, Uh public commendation, confessing your name before the Father in heaven. Imagine what a blessing that will be. You're in heaven, you're enjoying eternity and all that comes with that. You're fellowshipping with all the great men and women of the faith in Scripture and seeing your loved ones that died before you They're in heaven. All of a sudden you get a tap on the shoulder, you, you look over your shoulder, it's Jesus Christ. He says, hey, Cody, come with me. Of course you say, yes, sir, what are you going to say to Jesus, right? And you start walking, he says, come this way. And you walk all the way up this huge steps into this big mansion, into this big office. You knock on the door, you hear this big voice, come in. And you walk in, there's God Almighty sitting behind the desk. And Jesus says, hey Father, you got a moment? He says, sure, he says, I just want to point out this this servant here, this is Cody. I want to commend him before you because he was one of the good ones. He really did a lot on earth and made great sacrifices. Can you think of anything better than being commended before God by the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven? See, we just tend to think in terms of all or nothing, heaven, hell, and everything's about either you go to heaven or you don't. There's a lot going on in eternity. We're not just floating around on clouds singing, you know, kumbaya and playing harps. We're, We're ruling, we're reigning, we're serving, we're walking, we're working, we're talking, we're fellowshipping, we're meeting the Lord. And one of the blessings that awaits faithful believers is special commendation. All three of these things, by the way, clothed in white garments, not blotting out your name, and confession before the Father are three different ways of special recognition. So what does he mean, I will not blot out his name from the book of life? Sometimes people talk about, you know, the Bible says your name can be blotted out from the book of life. Where does it say that? Certainly not here. I mean, unless I'm blind, I think it says just, the other. I will not blot out your name. And just because, you know, you say you uh, can do something, I mean, cannot do something, doesn't mean it's possible to do the opposite. This is, in uh, figures of speech, this is called a litotes. Are you familiar with that figure of speech? It means uh, when we, when we emphasize one thing by denying the opposite. So we use it all the time in English if I said, uh, you know, boy, that's not bad. What do I mean? That's good. If I said, man, that was no small feat, that was a pretty good accomplishment, right? So it's called a litodes. It's common in every language. We see a lot of them in Greek. Um, where is it in Hebrews? Um, let's see if I can find this one real quick. Yeah, Hebrews 6.10, God says, or the writer says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Does that mean that God can be unjust? Well, it says He's not. It must mean He can be unjust, right? No, of course not. It's a litotes. It means He's particularly just. And the same thing is true in Revelation. uh, uh, Over here in Revelation 3, where we just were, when he says, I will not blot out your name, he's, he's saying, I'm going to emphasize it. I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to circle it and put a star by it. It's, it's a way of emphasizing the opposite. So you're going to wear white clothes. You're going to be highlighted in the book of life. And I'm going to give you special commendation before my Father in heaven. Yeah. Chapter nineteen says, or verse nineteen says, "And if any man shall take away from the words of this book of prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book." Yeah, some of the things part. Not saying you won't get in. You're just your blessings aren't going to be as rich and as full uh, when you're when you're in there. The book of life is not just a zero sum game. It's there's a quality to life and the experiential. Uh, the experience that people have in heaven will differ from person to person, but it will be a positive, glorious experience for everyone, right? And that's all written in the book of life. Then. Well, in that case, he's making a reference to the book of life. I don't know that we can be that you know, precise about it. But yeah, I mean, that's another thing that people struggle with is we think that, you know, heaven is 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 uniform that everybody's going to have the same exact experience and we think that otherwise it just doesn't seem fair and you know it just doesn't make sense to us so but we have to you know let the bible speak on these matters and we have to understand them based on theological principles and not violate those principles so the first principle is how much sin is there is there in heaven how much sin is there in heaven None, right? Heaven is a sinless place for all of eternity, right? So jealousy is a sin, right? So how much jealousy can there be in heaven? None. So let's start there. Now let me ask you this. How about on earth? There's plenty of sin on earth, right? Uh, Plenty of jealousy on earth, right? Is it possible, as a believer, for you to see another believer getting blessed in a way more than you, experiencing great blessings. Maybe they got a great new job, got a great new car. Or something. Is it possible in this earth for you to see that and genuinely be happy for them without being jealous? Sure. Of course it is. We do it all the time. Might, you know, we tend to be jealous a lot too, but yeah, we can do that. Well, if it's possible here in a world sold under sin, how much more possible is it in heaven? So it's going to be perfect love, perfect joy, perfect uh you know experience. And so sure, some people are gonna be reigning over ten cities. Some people might not reign at all. Some people are going to be, you know, kings and some people are going to be paupers, you know, in the sense of street cleaners, you know. But it's a positive experience for anybody. Nobody has a negative experience. No sorrow, no death, no crying, no shame, no jealousy. It's all positive. Um, and that's hard for us to understand, but we we if we stop and think about it, It shouldn't be because we have the similar types of things happening today. If uh, my wife and I go to a movie, we love to go to movies. It's one of our favorite date things to do. And if we go to a movie, inevitably when we're walking out, what do you think? What did you think? Well, I loved it. Well, I loved it too. We both loved it. Let's say it's getting harder and harder to find a movie that we do love, but let's assume for the illustration we both loved it. Now, I can't climb inside her heart and know exactly the degree to which she thoroughly enjoyed it and gained enjoyment from that movie. Nor can she climb inside my heart and know exactly. All we know is we both had a positive experience. It was entertaining for both of us. We both enjoyed it, right? So the same thing is true in heaven. Uh, what you want is you want to have a an experience in heaven that is hearing the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant, hearing the Lord say that, and then and experiencing incredible rewards, crowns and, and whatnot. Um, So, you know, back to the idea of confession, the point is we don't have to confess to get into heaven. There are specific things in Scripture that are mentioned that have to do with confession that bring with them corresponding results. For the nation of Israel, when they confess the Lord, they'll get their kingdom. But they're not going to confess the Lord until they first believe the gospel. For individual disciples, when we confess publicly the name of the Lord, even at great personal cost, a martyr's reward awaits us. For some believers, when they confess the Lord before others, they're going to receive special clothing in heaven and commendation and that kind of thing. So confession is a not a technical term that means the same thing in every context, but one thing we can say for sure is the one and only requirement for getting into heaven is faith alone, not faith plus confession in any form. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome, we'll take a break uh, and uh, we will pick up after the break. Let's come back at 2.35. 2.35.